Hey, before we get started on Revive Our Hearts today, you know, it's the first day of March, which means it's Partner Appreciation Month here at Revive Our Hearts, and I want to invite you to become a Revive Partner. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is that? Well, here's our partner specialist, Portia Collins, to explain. A Revive Partner is someone who supports the Revive Our Hearts ministry in a variety of ways. Of course, they are prayer warriors and they champion the things that we're doing, the Bible-based content that we provide. But more specifically, Revive Partners are those people who also give monthly to the ministry. Revive Partners give a minimum of $30 a month and the sky's the limit from there. So we have some partners who are giving $30 a month. Thank you. All right. That's nothing to like wink it, all right? That is a big deal. But we also have partners who are giving like $250 a month. The choice is yours in terms of what you decide what the Lord leads you to give monthly. But that is a criteria of Revive Partners is that they do give monthly. And as a way, a small way that we say thank you and that we try to serve our partners is there are a lot of as benefits or perks, you could say, that Revive Partners are able to receive. To find out more about becoming a Revive Partner and what those perks are, visit our website, reviveourhearts.com slash partner. We're praying for 350 new partners this month, and we're so grateful for each and every person on the partner team and their investment in the work God is doing through Revive Our Hearts. Jesus is both human and divine. Can you ever fully understand that? Here's Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth. If we could put Jesus in our little box that we could figure out, then he wouldn't be amazing anymore. He wouldn't be incomparable. We shouldn't be able to figure him out completely. We have to take a lot of this by faith. But as we do, we marvel and we worship. He really is the incomparable Christ. This is the Revive Our Hearts podcast with Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, author of Surrender, The Heart God Controls. For March 1st, 2024, I'm Dana Gresh. Nancy's been leading us through a series called Incomparable. We've looked at several reasons Jesus truly is incomparable. It's been a rich study to take us through the Lenten season as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday. If you haven't gotten a copy of Nancy's new book called Incomparable, you can get one as our thanks when you make a donation of any amount to Revive Our Hearts. Visit reviveourhearts.com or call 1-800-569-5959. That's 1-800-569-5959. Now here's Nancy to continue in the series. Within the first few hundred years after the life of Christ here on this earth, there were several controversies that arose within the church that had to do with the person and nature of Christ. Who was he really? They were sorting this through and wanting to make sure they got it right. So I want to give you, at the beginning of today's program, just a real quick church history lesson. This all took place within the first three or four hundred years after the life of Christ here on this earth. First, there was a man named Arius. I referred to him a few programs ago. He was a teacher from Alexandria, Egypt, who believed that Christ was a highly exalted being 
but he was a created being who is not himself the eternal God. So he elevated Christ, but he said Christ was not fully God. That was a heresy that has perpetuated itself many times in many different ways over the past 16 or 1700 years. The Arian heresy. And then there was a bishop in Laodicea whose name was Apollinarius. I'm not expecting you to remember this, but I just want you to get a glimpse of some of these streams and how these heresies evolved. This man agreed that Christ was indeed fully God, but he couldn't see how he could be both fully God and fully man. So he taught that Christ had a human body, but not a human mind and spirit. Outside, he looked like a man had a human body, but inside he was fully and only God. So Arius said that Jesus was not fully God. Apollinarius, the second one, said he was not fully man. Then came along another popular preacher and bishop in Constantinople. His name was Nestorius. And he affirmed that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but he thought that therefore Christ must be two persons in one body, one divine person and one human person. So he denied the unity of the two natures in one body. And then the opposite issue or heresy arose in relation to how those two natures, divine and human, were related. A man named Eutyches, again a a churchman, a teacher, who denied the distinction of the two natures. He said that Christ had only one nature that was a mixture of human and divine. It wasn't fully human. It wasn't fully divine. It was a mixture of the two. Now, in relation to each of these heresies, the church leaders met and convened what were called councils to clarify the truth about Jesus. Who was he? God, man, how does this all come together? And you can not fault them for this being a tough assignment. We're having a hard time wrapping our minds around some of this because it's supernatural. It's mystery. And it's not comprehensible to human beings with finite minds. But they went back to the scripture and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit clarified these issues. The final one of those councils dealing with who was Jesus convened in 451 A.D., They met in a city called Chalcedon, which is in modern-day Turkey, and they addressed these various issues and heresies, came up with what is known as the Chalcedonian Creed, which since that time, though you may not be aware of it or familiar with it, since that time, that creed has been accepted by Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox churches as the biblical position on the person and the incarnation of Christ. It's a very important document. It's not the Bible but it takes the biblical teaching and summarizes it in one document. Now that document, the Chalcedonian Creed, can be summarized in four important doctrinal statements about Christ. Let me give you those four statements. Number one, Christ is fully and completely divine, fully God. Number two, Christ is fully and completely human, fully God, fully man. Number three, the divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. They're not one and the same. Number four, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. That means there are two distinct natures, one human and one divine, united in one person, the person of Christ. This whole concept that Christ is fully God, fully man, 
has distinct human and divine natures, two natures that are united in one person. That concept came to be known by theologians. I'll give you a fancy word here. It's known as the hypostatic union of Christ. Spelled just like it sounds, hypostatic union of Christ. I won't go into great detail about how all that emerged, but it is one of the most profound concepts in theology and one of the most important. This is what makes Christ incomparable the incomparable Christ, the fact that he has two distinct natures, one human, one divine, that are united in one person. He is not two persons. He is one person, fully God and fully man, the son of God and the son of man. And again, this this makes him incomparable. There is no other, quote, God in the history of the universe that has ever become a man. And there is no other religious leader who could claim to be God. They could claim to be God, but they weren't God. (laughs) Jesus is the God-man. And so today, we've been skirting around this in the last few sessions. We've been approaching it, but I want to pull what we've talked about on the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. I want to pull that together today and take a deeper look at the twofold nature of Christ. Now, this is a little bit of tough sledding. I acknowledge that we are in some deep territory doctrinally. But let me say that the goal of all this is not to be able to spout off terms like hypostatic union or to name these early church fathers. The goal is to see Christ, to get to know him, to love him, to be ravished by his beauty. And as you do, you'll find that sin is less alluring and that life's pressures are less overwhelming when you see the greatness and the grandness of who Christ is. And you may wonder as we talk about some of these things, what's the so what of all this? What are the practical implications? Well, what's really practical is that we're getting to know a person by studying these things. This is who he really is. And if we're going to know him and trust him and love him, then it's important to get this. Now, I'm not saying that we can ever fully understand it because we can't, but we need to at least affirm that this is true. Jesus, the God-man, this is a cardinal foundational Christian doctrine. And as I've said, it's something that our finite minds can no way, no how, comprehend or explain. This is mystery. And we need to acknowledge that when we're trying to explain it. You try and explain it to your four-year-old, how Jesus could be God and could be man. I, I struggle trying to explain it to you. I've spent many hours over these last weeks trying to think through how to make this at least a bit comprehensible. But we're dealing with mystery. We're dealing with things that are beyond our reach. And the secular world sees that as a cop-out. They say, if you can't explain it, it can't be true. But the fact is, if we could understand this, If we could put Jesus in our little box that we could figure out, then he wouldn't be amazing anymore. He wouldn't be incomparable. We shouldn't be able to figure him out completely. We have to take a lot of this by faith. But as we do, we marvel and we worship. He really is the incomparable Christ. The concept of Christ having two natures in one person is affirmed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's look first at the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we have what is for many of us a familiar Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
Now here we see a reference, a veiled reference, 700 years before Christ was born, to the fact that he would be one person. This is talking about one person. This is not two different people, a child and a son. This is one person, but with two natures. A child is born speaks of his, which nature? His humanity. A son is given from heaven speaks of which nature? His deity, the fact that he is God. So a a child is born to the Virgin Mary. A son is given. This is the gift of God from heaven. That's his deity. You see the same concept, two natures, one person, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, this is the time we celebrate at Christmas, God sent forth his son, the one he was talking about in Isaiah 9. He sent forth his son, born of a woman. Two natures, son of God, he is God, he's equal with God, of the same substance as God, and born of a woman, his deity and his humanity. We've been looking at those, we looked at them separately earlier in this series, now we're looking at the twofold nature of Christ at one time. You see this concept, the two natures in one person, affirmed in many of our great hymns. For example, one of the great hymns that we sing and one of the earliest Christmas carols ever written, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it has this phrase, born a child and yet a king. The two natures in one person, born a child and yet a king. This concept, two natures, one person, is affirmed in many of the great confessions and creeds of our faith. For example, the Belgic Confession, written in 1561, says, We confess that he is very God and very man. Very God by his power to conquer death, and very man that he might die for us. Two natures, one person. Now, Jesus was always the divine son of God. He was always equal with God. He was always of the same substance with the Father. Before there was time, in eternity past, and we talked about this earlier in this series when we talked about the pre-existence of Christ. Before there was time, before eternity began, before he came to this earth, he was always the divine Son of God. But when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he took on a second nature, a human nature. And he did that Now, don't ask me to explain this. I'm just telling you. He did that without in any way diminishing his deity. He added that human nature to his divine nature that he'd had forever. You see both these natures in the Gospels. For example, Jesus went to a wedding. That's his humanity, his human nature. But what did he do while he was at the wedding? He changed the water to wine. That's his deity, his godness, his godhood. He went out on a boat with his disciples and fell asleep in the bottom of the boat because he was tired. What nature is that? His humanity. And then he got up and rebuked and stilled the storm. What nature is that? His deity. Two natures, one person. Chrysostom was one of the early church fathers, lived in the late 300s and the early 400s after Christ. He said it this way. I do not think of Christ as God alone or man alone, but both together. For I know he was hungry, yet I know that with five loaves he fed 5,000. Humanity and deity. I know he was thirsty, and I know yet that he turned the water into wine. I know that he was carried in a ship, yet I know that he walked upon the sea. 
I know that he died, yet I know that he raised the dead himself. I know that he was set before Pilate, and I know that he sits with the Father on his throne. I know that he was worshipped by angels, yet I know that he was stoned by the Jews. Some of these, he said, I ascribe to the human, others to the divine nature. For by reason of this, he is said to have been both God and man. Now, it's important to realize that that twofold nature of Christ is not temporary, but it is permanent. He is still the God-man, and he will be forever. Today, he's enthroned in heaven in his resurrected, glorified body. The scars of the nails in his hands, the scars of the spear in his side are still visible in that glorified body. And what does he do with that human nature, the God-man? He represents us to the Father. As our advocate, he intercedes on our behalf. How precious and powerful is that? So we see here as we look back at the church fathers grappling with these things and we're trying to grapple with these things that boggle the mind, we see the importance of right thinking in relation to Christ. It's not surprising that this would be an ongoing battleground, not only in early church history, but in our day as well. Satan doesn't want us to know who Christ really is. So as in the early days of the church, erroneous teaching arose about the nature of Christ, they had to go back to the scripture, study it out, and affirm the truth about Christ. That wasn't the end of it. Today, there are still people, even within some of our churches, promoting false, erroneous teaching about Christ. And what do we have to do? Keep going back to the Word and affirming the truth about Christ. Now, the twofold nature of Christ, fully God, fully man, two natures in one person, was absolutely necessary for our redemption. This is not just, you know, parsing theological, you know, mysteries. This is crucial. It really, really matters. We cannot be saved apart from the fact that Christ was the God-man. This is a plan that God put in motion in eternity past. In order to save us from our sin, Christ had to become a man. He had to be truly man to represent us and fully God in order to be able to save us. As a man, he perfectly obeyed God's law. And that's what qualified him to die in our place as a substitute for our sins. As one man is quoted in Oswald Sanders' book saying, Had he not been man, he could not have sympathized with us. And had he not been God, he could not have saved us. He had to be both God and man. We need a Savior. And in order to be our Savior, in order to pay our debt, this individual must be like us. Not just God in a form that merely appears to be human, but someone fully and truly human. Yet he must be unlike us as well, since only a perfect sacrifice is acceptable. You understand that? He has to be like us to represent us, but he can't be just like us, or he'd have to die for his own sin. The humanity of Christ means that he is willing to save us. But if he was only human, he would not have had the power to save us. His deity means that he is able to save us. Because he is the God-man, he is both willing and able to save us. Praise the Lord. And let me give you some even better news than that. 
He did this. He became the God-man for us. Remember that verse I read earlier, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What an incredible demonstration of the awesome love of God. And so without ever ceasing to be fully God, without laying aside any of his godness, Jesus took on, he clothed himself in our human nature so that he could reconcile us to God. And if that doesn't move you, nothing will. (laughs) Now I know that some are perhaps hearing this concept for the very first time. And you're pondering it, you're thinking it through, you're trying to grasp it, you're saying this is heavy stuff. And I would just say press into it. It's huge truth. It's worth pressing into. But here's my concern, and that is for many of us for whom this stuff is very familiar. And the problem is we lose the wonder. We forget how amazing this is. Let me just help you restore the wonder a bit by reading an excerpt from a message John Piper preached on the God-man Christ Jesus. He says, the union of Christ's deity and humanity in one person makes it such that we have all that we need in the same Savior. Because Jesus is God, he is all-powerful and he cannot be defeated. Because he is God, he is the only adequate Savior. Because he is God, believers are safe and can never perish. We have security. Because he is God, we can have confidence that he will empower us for the task that he commands us for. And because he is God, all people will be accountable to him when he returns to judge the world. Because Jesus is man, he has experienced the same things that we do. Because he is man, he can identify with us more intimately. Because he is man, he can come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our human weaknesses. Because he is man, we can relate to him. He is not far off and uninvolved. Because he is man, we cannot complain that God does not know what we are going through. He experienced it firsthand. That's Nancy DeMoss-Walgamuth sharing a quote from John Piper on the wonder of Jesus. She'll be right back to pray. Nancy's been discussing a question that has kept theologians busy over the centuries. How could Jesus be both God and man? Today's program has been more than an intellectual exercise as we've considered our Messiah who was truly human and truly divine. We've been called to worship. Nancy's new book, Incomparable, is meant to not only give you the knowledge of who Jesus is, but also to move you to worship Him. I know that as I've read through this book, it has certainly called me to a heart of awe and wonder. And now, with the incomparable scripture card set, you can remind yourself of the message of that book wherever you go. For your donation of any amount this month, you'll receive a unique set of 52 scripture cards to help you meditate on the person, life, and works of Jesus. Each card includes a quote from Nancy and a Bible verse on the other side, perfect for taking with you on the go or to share with a friend. Request your scripture card set when you give at reviveourhearts.com or call us at 1-800-569-5959. That's 1-800-569-5959. The sinlessness of Christ is crucial to your salvation. Why? Find out Monday when Nancy explains the only remedy for sin— 
Now she's back to pray and wrap up today's message on Christ as truly God and truly man. We're on holy ground, Father. And I just want to thank you for Christ, the incomparable Christ, fully God, fully man, two natures in one person. Not only willing to save us because he is man, but able to save us from our sin because he is God. I pray in Jesus' holy name. This program is a listener-supported production of Revive Our Hearts in Niles, Michigan, calling women to freedom, fullness, and fruitfulness in Christ.